Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Welcome, everyone, to the Benefits Executive Roundtable. I'm your host, Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. I'm very happy to have with me today, once again, one of our favorites, Marilyn Monahan of Monahan Law Offices. I'm so excited to have you twice in the early part of Season 3. Marilyn, this is great. Uh, Marilyn's going to be giving us some very informative federal and state legislative updates. Welcome, Marilyn, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Dorothy, and thank you for inviting me to participate in this podcast and giving me the opportunity to discuss with you these very important issues. And what we're going to talk about to start this program off are the ACA transparency regulations as well as what the CAA has in store for us. So I need to kind of put some things in context so that when we get into the deadlines and what you have to do sooner rather than later and what's been delayed, you understand the big picture. So the first item is back in on November 12, 2020, um, the Trump administration issued an extensive set of regulations under the auspices of the Affordable Care Act, and they're referred to as the Transparency in Coverage Final Rule. Dorothy, I know, has done a lot of work on these. They are going to require a lot of work by health plans as well as issuers. And we're going to break those down and talk about precisely what the transparency and coverage final rule covers. So that was November 12, 2020. Then on December 27, 2020, President Trump signed the Consolidated Appropriations Act 2021 or the CAA. The CAA was a huge bill covering a lot of ground, covering a lot of provisions, um, including many provisions that apply to health and welfare benefit plans. Earlier this year, we were grappling with the changes to the cafeteria plan rule that the bill um, contained. But it also contained a lot of additional provisions, such as the surprise billing provisions and so forth. Some of the provisions in the CAA uh, duplicate provisions in the transparency and coverage final rule. Some of them do not. And um, when the government realized this, um, the Departments of Labor, Treasury, and Health and Human Services, they issued in August, on August 20th, 2021, a set of FAQs, acknowledging the fact that some provisions uh, duplicate between the CAA and the Transparency and Coverage Regulations. Some don't. Many of them are going to take a lot of time to implement. And what they basically did was they gave us additional time to implement some provisions. Other provisions, they're still going to require um, to uh, implement on time under the original statutory deadline. And they've also provided in that guidance some um, additional information, some additional insight on whether we can expect further guidance, further regulations, further FAQs or not. So with that background in mind of how those two pieces of the puzzle work together, let's get into the nitty gritty of what they do. There are basically five parts to the transparency and coverage regulations. The first three are the public disclosure parts. And number one, it requires health plans and issuers beginning on or after January 1, 2022. That's the original effective date. 
um, have to create first a machine-readable file within network rates and post them on the Internet. Then they also must post on the Internet a machine-readable file with out-of-network rates. And three, they must post a machine-readable file with negotiated rates on prescription drugs. Um, uh, by the way, these transparency and coverage rules do not apply to grandfathered plans. As I'll talk about later, however, the CAA rules do apply to grandfathered plans. So in the set of FAQs they issued in August, what they said is, we understand that creating these machine-readable files is a lot of work, so we're going to give plans additional time to create the machine-readable files on in-network and out-of-network rates. Basically, you'll now have until July 1, 2022 to create, um, to get those, uh, those, uh, that information up and running on the internet. Um, however, as of July 1, 2022, you are going to, um, have to comply if your planned year started on any time on or after January 1, 2022. So, um, everyone, for the first half of the planned year, it's got to be ready to go by July 1, 2022, and then after that, it will be based on your planned year date. With regard to the information regarding prescription drugs, what they said about that is they realized that there was a provision in the CAA that substantially duplicates this transparency and coverage provision. So what they've done is they've delayed that indefinitely while they work out guidance on the um, CAA's provision on disclosure of prescription drug prices. So in addition to the machine-readable files, there's another provision um, in, the, uh, in the transparency and coverage regulations, and that is an online self-service tool. And they've broken this down into two parts. Basically, the first part is plans and issuers have to have an online self-service tool that lists 500 shoppable items and services, um, and it must be available for plan years beginning on or after January 1, 2023. A shoppable service is something that you can uh, price out in advance. And all of this is, as the name implies, all about transparency. The idea here is that a participant who might need something like an MRI or a CAT scan or a particular lab test can go online, figure out what it's going to cost them depending on which provider they choose, and make an assessment of what their best option is. So they provided us with a list of 500 shoppable items and services which all plans and issuers who are subject to the law have to make available as of January 1, 2023 and thereafter. And then you have another year to make all of your other covered items and services not included in the list of 500 uh, available as of January 1, 2024. These deadlines were not extended by the FAQs. So as things stand now, those deadlines are firm. Now, I mentioned on the last slide that they recognized that the uh, information about prescription drugs uh, was substantially duplicated by a provision in the CAA. Well, the same is true of this online self-service tool, except in the CAA, they call it a price comparison tool. But again, they find that it's largely duplicative of the, of the uh, CAA provision, the two uh, provisions are largely duplicative. The one difference, well, the two differences are that the CAA provision applies to grandfather plans and the CAA provision also has a telephone requirement so that um, participants can call up over the phone and get prices. That was not part of the uh, transparency and coverage regulation. So what they're going to do 
is they're going to study the two provisions, figure out um, how plans should move forward and whether or not if plans comply with the transparency and coverage regulations and develop the online self-service tool under those regulations, will they be then therefore also in substantial compliance with the CAA price comparison tool so long as they add a telephone option? That's what they're looking at now and that's what they'll let us know at some point between now and January of 2023. So, what are your action items? If you are a fully insured plan and you are subject to these transparency and coverage regulations, you must enter into a written agreement with your issuer, with your insurance company, through which the insurance company agrees to be responsible for compliance with these transparency in coverage regulations. And if they agree to be responsible, then if they fail to do so, they will be liable for any potential penalties. If you have a self-funded plan, you must either comply or outsource um, compliance to a third-party service provider and enter into a written agreement with that third-party service provider so that they will provide you with compliance with the transparency and coverage regulations. Now, there's a little twist here. If they fail to do so, if they um, don't comply or they, they don't uh, fully satisfy the terms and conditions of the regulations, the self-funded plan remains liable. So that means one of the things you should be looking at when you enter into these agreements with your third-party service provider are what are the indemnification clause, limitations of liability, and so forth and so on to protect you in case they fail to perform. One other item I wanted to mention in this context, because I think it could cause confusion if I don't, but I'm mentioning it and with the good news that this slide does not create any work for anyone on this phone. <laughs> there was another set of regulations issued under the Affordable Care Act a couple of years ago that requires hospitals to publicly post information about their costs and services, the costs for their services. In this case, they had to start by uh, posting um, 300 shoppable services. And that requirement actually went into effect January 1, 2021. I'm telling you about this because it's been in the news quite a bit lately, and I would have let you understand how it all fits together. Again, it's a hospital mandate, not a plan mandate, not an insurance company mandate. But apparently some enterprising uh, newspaper reporters have been digging around and found out that uh, a lot of hospitals haven't been complying with this. And so CMS issued a set, a set of proposed regulations where uh, comments close period closes tomorrow. And in um, within those proposed regulations, one of the things they're proposing is substantially increasing the penalties for hospitals that don't comply. So if you hear chatter about that, that's what they're referring to. Okay. So with the transparency and coverage summary that I've just provided, I now want to put the compliance deadlines in context. And Dorothy has provided you with a more detailed handout that I created on all of the compliance deadlines for the TIC final rule, as well as for um, the CAA. Um, but I have summarized them briefly here on these charts on these slides. So this is just a rundown of the five different items that I talked about under the transparency and coverage regulations, the three machine-readable files, and the price comparison tool, which will be um, implemented in two different stages and I've got the, um, the deadlines here on this slide. And so these are the deadlines for the CAA, the various provisions that we um, I want to go over with you that are in the CAA that apply to group health plans 
including grandfathered and non-grandfathered plans, including fully insured and self-funded. So the chart mentions the specific item. The next column, of course, as you can see, is the original compliance date, and then the third column is the new compliance date. And as I mentioned, the chart that Dorothy is circulating has even um, a little bit more information um, for you on how all these works. So I talked about the price comparison tool, which um, substantially replicates provisions in the transparency and coverage regulations. That has been delayed for plan years beginning on or after January 1, 2023. The reporting on pharmacy benefits and drug costs. This is a mandate within the CAA that would require plans to report on, for example, their 50 most expensive drugs, their 50 most prescribed drugs to gather that type of information. The original compliance dates have been postponed on that because of the fact that they um, do overlap to a certain degree. So they're delayed indefinitely pending guidance, but they've also said that plans should start preparing to report for 2020 and 2021 by the end of December of 2022. Now, let's get into some new areas I haven't mentioned before, the ID cards. There is a requirement in CAA that we uh, update our ID cards, our health plan ID cards, to contain more information. Under this requirement, you're going to have to include out-of-pocket limits and deductibles. So everyone will be getting new ID cards going forward in the new year. If you're a fully insured plan, you can expect to see a new uh, amended versions of your existing ID cards. If you're self-funded, this is something that you're going to have to implement. They have not delayed the ID card requirement. They do expect to issue guidance on the ID card requirement, but not by January 1, 2022. They won't get it out before the first deadline hits. So what they've advised us in that set of FAQs I've referenced is that until then, plans should implement the requirement using a good faith, reasonable interpretation of the statute. There's also a new provider directory mandate. Plans are going to have to update their provider directories every 90 days. And um, if, for example, you don't update your provider directory, let's say a participant calls you up and says, please provide me with the name of an in-network doctor, and you in error give them the name of an out-of-network doctor, that individual will not be responsible for the price differential. So that provision, again, that would go into effect beginning on or after January 1, 2022, has not been delayed. Again, like with the ID cards, they will issue guidance, but don't expect to have it out by January 1, 2022. So until then, you have to implement that provision using a good faith, reasonable interpretation of the statute. There is a provision in the CAA that would allow individuals to go to their doctor and say, you are going to perform the following services. Can you provide me with a written estimate of how much it's going to cost me and provide me with the billing codes that would apply? This is planned to go into effect as of January 1, 2022. What the FAQs that I keep referring to talk about is they are not going to delay this provider mandate for uninsured individuals, but they will defer enforcement for insured individuals. Um, they will eventually issue guidance. They think they can get it out prior to January 1, 2022. Once you get that good faith estimate from a provider under the CAA, you can then take it to your plan and you can say, these are the services my provider is going to provide 
and these are the billing codes, and then ask the plan to provide the um, participant with an advanced explanation of benefits so that the um, participant can get an understanding of what they will have to pay in out-of-pocket costs if they go to this particular provider. They do intend to issue guidance on this part, the advanced uh, explanation of benefits. They don't expect to have this out before January 1, 2022, so they have delayed compliance with this provision indefinitely pending guidance. Surprise billing. This applies for plan years beginning on or after January 1, 2022. It has not been delayed. Dorothy is going to talk about the surprise billing regulations next. Mental health parity. There is a mental health parity provision in the CAA that requires plans, both fully insured and self-funded, to make certain that they are providing mental health and substance use disorder benefits in parity with their medical and surgical benefits. And in order to establish that they're doing this in parity, they have to prepare some rather detailed comparative analyses so that if they get audited by the Department of Labor, the Department of Labor will ask to see these and then they can produce them saying, yes, we do provide these benefits in parity, both under the terms of our plan and in actual practice. That provision is already in effect, and I've heard from some practitioners that the Department of Labor is already asking for those comparative analyses when they conduct audits. Gag clauses. There is a provision in uh, the CAA that says that plans and issuers cannot enter into contracts with provider networks, which restrict their ability to disclose certain information about in-network rates. That provision is currently in effect. It is considered self-executing, so they may not be issuing guidance, but there's a separate provision with respect to the gag clauses where you actually have to report to the Department of Labor on what you've done here. And that provision, the reporting to the Department of Labor, has been delayed indefinitely pending guidance. I skipped over continuity of care. This is a provision that requires plans to provide coverage at in-network rates for a certain period of time, for about for a certain period of time, I think it's about 90 days, for individuals who are experiencing um, certain health conditions if the individual's provider goes out of network. Implementation of continuity of care has not been delayed. Finally, I wanted to mention the broker disclosure provision. There is a provision in the uh, CAA that requires brokers and other consultants to disclose additional information than they might have been currently disclosing on fees, commissions, and the scope of services they're providing to plans. This goes into effect December 27, 2021. It has not been delayed. We have guidance on the section of this provision that applies to individual coverage. We don't have any guidance on the section that provides uh, applies to group health plans, although we're hoping to get it pretty soon. If you're self-funded, obviously you're going to have a few compliance challenges to add to your to-do list between now and the beginning of the year and then the next couple of years. So work with your outside service providers to ensure that you get these done. Um, in some cases, it's going to require amendments to your contracts and so forth, but you need to create an action plan, a checklist, and follow through with any outside service providers you need to retain to provide these services. If you're fully insured, most of these items will be taken care of by your insurance company, but it is still wise 
to uh, reach out to your insurance company and make sure that they are intend to uh, be compliant. For example, on the mental health charity, um, while it is a mandate, uh, it's a mandate on the plan. So if you as the employer get audited, they will ask for these comparative analyses. Now, obviously, you can't run them, only really effectively the insurance company can. But if you have it in writing from the insurance companies, yes, we will be in compliance, you can at least present that to the Department of Labor if they come calling. I did mention earlier that while the transparency and coverage regulations do not apply to grandfathered plans, the CAA does apply to grandfathered plans. This They clarified that in the uh, FAQs that they issued. So I created this little list here of areas where I thought that might make a potential difference. Dorothy's going to talk about the surprise billing interim final regulations. One of the ways in which that will make a difference is under the ACA, there are certain patient protection rules built in, but they do not apply to grandfathered plans. What they've done with the CAA is they've restated them under the surprise billing rules. So now they do apply to grandfather plans where they didn't in the past. Also, there were some rules in the Affordable Care Act as to how to pay and process and price out claims for emergency services. Those will be effectively replaced by the CAA rules, and those will now apply to grandfather plans. With regard to the transparency and coverage rules, the prescription drug reporting requirement and the self-service tool, which do not, did not apply under the transparency and coverage regulations to grandfather plans, their counterpart in the CAA will now apply to grandfather plans. Well, thanks, Marilyn. That was a lot of good information. Why don't you tell us a little bit uh, in introductory form about surprise billing for the purposes of this podcast? I know that we've already done an extended uh, podcast on this topic in Season 3, Episode 3, but why don't you just give everyone a little overview in case they did not catch that uh, particular podcast recording. So this is just a little overview of what they're all about. First of all, they banned surprise billing for emergency services. So emergency services, even if you go to an out-of-network provider, they will be treated as if they were in-network without prior authorization. They also banned high out-of-network cost sharing for emergency and non-emergency services. They also banned out-of-network charges for ancillary care at an in-network facility in all circumstances. So let's say you go in for um, surgery at an in-network facility and you say, oh good, I only have to worry about my deductible and copay only to find out your anesthesiologist or your radiologist or the lab tests were out of network and now you're looking at a big balance bill. This is designed to take care of that. Um, similarly, there's, um, there is an out clause for some out-of-network providers where they can provide you with a notice and still go ahead and balance bill you. So the way the system is set up is there are certain ancillary services for which approval can never be obtained. So there's various notice requirements. This may require an amendment to plan terms. Um, it will probably, uh, if it doesn't, uh, in addition to an amendment to plan terms, it will definitely require probably an amendment to claims procedures that your TPA utilizes. And one final reminder on this point is state rules on uh, balance billing limitations continue to apply. We have a few of them here in California. So um, that mostly apply to uh, fully insured plans. Those don't go away. They're just going to have to be integrated with the federal standards. And the highest standard is what the participant will be able to take advantage of. What we're going to do here is we talked about the transparency rules. We talked about the CAA. Now let's walk, let's talk through some deadlines, um, 
changes and so forth that are coming up under other federal rules. So what was the hot topic a few months ago, the ARPA COBRA subsidies. A few reminders about this. The ARPA COBRA subsidies end on September 30th. Um, after that, people are not entitled to subsidized coverage. Now, there is a slight twist in that. In that, um, The FAQs that they issued, that 41-page set of extensive FAQs, did mention that if coverage uh, terms because of when people have you know, pay, processed payroll, if the coverage doesn't end on September 30th, but your payroll period runs into like October 2nd or 3rd, then the subsidy would also run into um, October 2nd or 3rd, something like that. Uh, a little reminder that you were required to send out a notice to individuals who qualified for the subsidy, but their subsidy was about to end. That notice was supposed to go out by September 15th. That was the last day to get those notices out. I won't cover the new guidance that they did issue uh, in 2021-46, but just a reminder that they did supplement some of the things that we originally understood as to how to administer the COBRA subsidy. By the way, these are not being extended by the federal government, so they will end on September 30th. And everyone who is on COBRA, all AEIs, assistance eligible individuals, will then be able to continue on your COBRA coverage. They don't have to reelect. You just continue on, but you start to build them. If they don't want to pay for COBRA coverage or unable to pay for COBRA coverage, then they can look to Covered California and see if they can enroll in a Covered California plan for which they might be able to get a premium subsidy. Reminder about the ARPA voluntary paid leave provisions. So I'll give you a little background on this to put it all in context. Remember last year, um, it seems like a long time ago, but it was just 2020, Congress passed the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, which created two mandatory paid leave provisions, mandatory paid sick leave and mandatory FMLA expansion. Employers, if they uh, were the right size, were obligated to provide paid leave to employees who had a qualifying leave, started in April, and it ended December 31, 2020. It, has, it was never extended by Congress. What Congress did instead is when they passed the CAA um, in December of 2020 is they said, we're not going to extend the mandatory paid leave, but what we will do is if employers voluntarily want to provide paid leave through March 31, they can get a tax credit and they must provide it on the same terms and conditions as they would have provided it under Families First in order to get the tax credit. Then along came ARPA, the American Rescue Plan Act, and it did similar to what the CAA did. And it basically kept, it allowed employers to provide paid leave on a voluntary, not a mandatory, but a voluntary basis and receive a tax credit through September 30th. They also changed up the bases on which someone could qualify for paid leave. So you'd have to, if you were an employer, you wanted the tax credit through September 30th, you'd have to provide it under all the new bases now um, allowed under ARPA. Remember, no double dipping allowed, so that if you were getting a tax credit for, say, the COBRA subsidies, you might not be able to use that same pot of money and get a tax credit also for voluntary paid leave. You must maintain health coverage when people are on leave. The IRS issued multiple sets of FAQs to help employers understand this. There's one set of FAQs that are available to explain to you how you claim the tax credit through the end of March, and then there's another set to explain how you can claim the tax credit from April 1, September 30th. 
There's also some uh, supplemental IRS guidance, uh, IRS Notice 2021-53, which Dorothy sent out to all her clients, which provides even more information and an outline for employers who provided this voluntary paid leave and now want to uh, request the tax credit. We also recently received guidance on whether or not long COVID might qualify as a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act or certain other federal laws. The regulators have informed us that in some circumstances, people experiencing long COVID, which means that they have lingering symptoms from their COVID-19 diagnosis, might be considered disabled if those long COVID symptoms substantially limit one or more life activities. If you have a situation like this that comes up, it will be determined on a facts and circumstances basis, so you may have to go through a reasonable accommodations analysis under the ADA. Contact your employment lawyer to make a determination as to what next steps should be taken in such a circumstance. I wanted to take a moment to talk a little bit about ACA reporting. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, the IRS came out with the affordability percentage that you use to calculate employee contributions for self-only coverage for your lowest cost plan to ensure that it is affordable coverage as defined by the ACA um, and so that you don't get hit with a 4980HB penalty. So that affordability percentage is 9.61%. It's actually down from last year's percentage of 9.83%. Another thing to consider is, are you going to be considered an ALE for 2022? A lot of employers have changed size. They may have lost employees. They may have gained employees. Whether or not you have to uh, consider yourself an applicable large employer for 2022 will depend on how many employees you had on average over the course of 2021. So that is a calculation that some employers might need to make each year and make a determination. I've given some tentative uh, distribution and filing deadlines for the 1094 and 1095 forms. They haven't formally announced these, but these are the typical deadlines that we see. They have already announced that it is very unlikely that they will automatically grant additional time to furnish the 1095Cs to employees um, for the 2021 forms, which will therefore have to be distributed by January 31, 2022. Good faith penalty relief. Every year since the ACA reporting mandate went into effect, they have granted employers good faith penalty relief. Um, and what this means is if you file and distribute the forms on time, but make mistakes in how you fill them out, they won't assess a penalty for uh, making mistakes in how you fill them out if you can establish that you made a good faith effort to do it right. They announced last year, at the end of last year, that they probably will not extend that good faith penalty relief for the 2021 forms. So if you've had issues or problems in completing those forms in the past, this is the year to get it right. One other item that I wanted to mention here is some states have their own individual coverage mandate. Those include California, D.C., Massachusetts, New Jersey, Rhode Island, and Vermont. Those states, all of them except Vermont, created some reporting requirements um, last year. I haven't checked the status for this upcoming year, um, although I do know it's still in effect for California. This could affect you specifically if you have a self-funded plan and you have employees living in those states. It, in some cases, it might also affect you if you have an insured plan. So if you have employees in these states, you need to know what the rules are and make sure you comply with them. 
Uh, interestingly, I suspect most of you file your um, 1094 and 1095 forms electronically already, but just in case you don't, uh, I wanted to let you know about a proposed rule that the IRS issued. It's currently in the comment stage, so they haven't issued a final rule yet, but it's interesting that all the examples they use in the proposed rules anticipate that the rules will be in effect by next year. So currently, you do not have to file your 1094 and 1095 forms or your W-2s, your 1099s electronically if you file fewer than 250 of each of those forms. If these proposed rules pass as intended, that's going to change. And in 2022, so when you start filing your 1094 and 1095 forms for 2021, as well as your 2021 W-2s, the threshold is going to be 100 returns. And in 2023, the threshold is going to be 10. And for this purpose, you also have to add up all your forms together. Right now, for the 250 thresholds, you look at each type of form separately, the 1095, the W-2, and so forth. In the future, you'll add them all together. So let's say you file 60 W-2s and 60 1095Cs. Next year, you'll have to file those electronically. This will only affect those of you who are accustomed to filing things on paper, but it is something to know about because there are still a number of employers out there who do that. A few other ACA updates. Just a reminder, they did change up the grandfather rules to make it easier for you to make adjustments in your deductibles and co-pays on using new standards without losing grandfather status. Those went into effect June 15, 2021, um, and will remain in effect going forward. They also issued supplemental guidance on preventive services. As you know, um, non-grandfathered plans must cover preventive services without cost sharing. As of last year, they uh, one of the new preventive services that plans had to cover was a treatment for HIV. The new guidance explains that it's not only the actual treatment for HIV that you have to provide without cost sharing, but it's also um, other baseline and monitoring services that you have to provide in connection with that treatment also have to be, also have to be provided without cost sharing. This is just for your reference. Um, I created this chart of health and welfare plan limits. They adjust every year. Um, they have not yet come out with the health FSA limits um, and a few of the other limits for the new year, but these are the ones we do have. A few additional deadlines just to remind you about. I'm sure Dorothy keeps you uh, keeps reminding you of all these, but just uh, just to be as thorough as possible, the Patient-Centered Outcome Research Institute fee, the PCORI fee, it was scheduled to lapse, but they re-upped it in the Consolidated Appropriations Act for, Act for 2020. Remember to calendar this. It will be in effect through September of 2029. Um, you have to file and pay the fee each year by July 31. It's not based on your planned year. Everyone files on the same date. Don't forget about your Form 5500 and your summary annual report. The Form 5500 is due on the last day of the seventh month after the close of the planned year, and the SAR two months after that. This is the season for medical loss ratio rebates. This is the time of year when HMOs and insurance companies issue medical loss ratio rebates. Um, remember that if your employees contribute to more the cost of coverage, those are considered those contributions are considered plan assets. And the bottom line is you will probably have to share a portion of the rebate you receive 
with those employees. And you also have to share that within 90 days because of an ERISA trust rule. So um, if you get that check, be aware that um, you don't get to necessarily, as an employer, get to keep the whole amount. Um, and there are time limits on when you have to distribute the funds if that's the route you go. One final deadline to mention is the Medicare Part D certificates of creditable or non-creditable coverage must be distributed prior to October 15. The reason they have that deadline, by the way, is because um, I believe it's Medicare open enrollment starts Medi uh, October 15, so employees might need to know whether or not they have creditable coverage so that they can make election choices on their Part D plans. Final item I wanted to talk about with regard to the federal update is President Biden's recent announcement about his plan for the path out of the pandemic. All we have so far is a very basic outline of what they intend to do. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration is supposed to come out with regulations, but uh, we don't have those yet. They just made this announcement about a week ago. But basically what this would require um, if it goes into effect as planned, is that OSHA will develop a rule that will require all employers with 100 or more employees to ensure their workforce is fully vaccinated or require a negative COVID test weekly. We don't yet know how they expect us to count up the number of employees to reach that amount. Mandated pay, also OSHA will also develop a rule that no worker loses a dollar of pay because they get vaccinated. That's the quote from the... Um, President's announcement. Um, one of the questions we do get is who has to comply? Basically, all employers subject to OSHA have to comply, and that is a broad range of employers. We tend to think that OSHA applies to, you know, employers uh, with manufacturing plants and things of that nature, but office workers are subject to OSHA as well. So um, if you are subject to OSHA and you have a hundred or more employees, you will have to comply, um, and we have to wait for the guidance. I did want to quote for you some existing rules from the California, California Department of Industrial Relations um, that uh, have uh, currently have been posted on their website um, that might play into these new OSHA guidelines. The first one is, my employer required to compensate me for time spent obtaining a COVID-19 test or vaccine. The short answer to that is yes, um, in most circumstances. And I have um, quoted uh, in part the uh, FAQ from the California Department of Industrial Relations. These are available. This set of FAQs is available on the internet. What about the actual cost of the test? The answer is yes. The employer has to pay for it if the employer expressly requires it. Uh, the test and the vaccination as well, the regulations say. The Federal Department of Labor has also weighed in on these issues um, earlier, so not in response to the uh, president's most recent pronouncement. These were uh, pre-existing rules. Again, if your employer requires COVID testing during the workday, do you need to be paid for time spent undergoing the test? The answer is generally yes. And do I need to be paid for time spent undergoing testing? Answer is it depends. So watch for further guidance, develop a plan, consult your employment lawyer as needed. California update. So a little reminder about California's legislative calendar. So obviously we're at the end of the legislative calendar. I created this based on some uh, uh, highlights of the uh, published calendar that the legislature publishes every year. The Assembly and the Senate had until September 10 to pass uh, 
any bills that they um, uh, thought were worthy of passage for the year. So uh, September 10 was the deadline for each house to pass bills, and then they all went on recess. The governor then has approximately 30 days to decide whether or not he's going to sign or veto any of the bills sent to him by the legislature. So that's his deadline. Um, and usually he waits, all governors do this, they wait to the last minute. So we get a whole slew of bill signings, usually in the last week or two. The way California's constitution works is all bills signed by the governor take effect on January 1, 2022, unless by their terms they have a later or earlier effective date. A few things I wanted to remind you about that's going on in California. CalSavers was challenged in court by the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association. They lost, and so the CalSavers mandate remains in full force and effect. So how CalSavers works is employers with five or more employees, but not government employees, will eventually be required to either provide their employees with a qualified retirement plan or register with CalSavers. And you can see the deadlines there on the screen. As of June 30th of this year, it was employers with over 50 employees. By June 30th of next year, it's going to be employers with five or more employees. So um, if you don't have a retirement plan, uh, this is something to think about in advance. Do you want to set up a retirement plan? What are the costs? What are the administrative concerns? So forth and so on. Um, and if not, then you have the option to register with CalSavers. If you do register with CalSavers, there are no fees attached to that. Uh, the employer doesn't have any fees. The employer doesn't have to make any contributions, cannot make any contributions. It's solely based on employee contributions. But the employer has some work to do. You have to sign up. You have to register. You have to submit an employee census. Uh, you have to update that census with new hires and terminations. And you have to agree to um, funnel contributions from your payroll on a regular basis into the CalSavers system. Employees do have the right to opt out of CalSavers. And um, based on um, the information provided on the website, I've quoted there the types of plans that do uh, satisfy the CalSavers uh, Qualified Retirement Plan uh, alternative option. So if you provide one of these plans for your employees, you don't have to register with CalSavers. California passed its own version of supplemental paid sick leave for COVID-19. This version was not voluntary, unlike the federal version in CAA and ARPA. Uh, the California provision applied to public and private employers with 26 or more employees. Um, there are three bases on which someone was entitled to take paid leave under um, California SB 95. The California SB 95 does expire at the end of September. So um, it is uh, it is running out. And um, it, remember that employers did have to update their posters and pay stubs. Um, and another reminder that I want to give you is, um, although SB 95 may be running out, please check municipal ordinances that may apply to you. There might be um, a municipal ordinance that requires you to provide paid sick leave benefits to employees for COVID-19 or other issues. And also, uh, employees might be entitled to paid leave um, outside of the SB 95, just under one of your existing paid leave policies, under FMLA, under CIFRA, and so forth. SB 657, I think, is a good bill um, that passed the legislature. I think most employers will probably appreciate this bill. 
As you know, we all have, as employers, uh, with employees, we all have notice posting requirements. And generally, um, the posting requirements say that you have to put them prominently in the workplace. Often this ends up being put in the break room or some other place within the workplace where employees tend to uh, congregate. What this bill does in light of COVID-19 and so many employees telecommuting is it gives the employers the option to also uh, distribute posters electronically for those employees uh, who don't come into the office. So it's permissive, it's not mandatory, but it gives you another option. You still have to meet the pre-existing notice posting requirements, um, but this allows you a mechanism to get those notices and posters out to those employees who are teleworking and never come into the office. And I just wanted to remind you that the federal government did issue some guidance last December with regard to federal notice posting requirements to give you some idea of how you can address teleworking employees and still meet your legal obligations um, to keep them informed of FLSA, FMLA, and so forth. So now I'm going to move into a summary of pending bills. I've divided this up into categories. Where we are with most of these bills I'm going to talk about is um, uh, they've been passed by the legislature um, and they are now sitting on Governor Newsom's desk. So the first category of bills I'm going to talk about are mandated benefit bills. These bills are bills that require insurance companies and HMOs to um, offer a particular benefit. So um, uh, I'll give you some examples. They introduced quite a number of bills this year um, that were, did qualify as mandated benefit bills. In the end, only these five were actually passed by the legislature. One has already been signed by the governor, the one with Chapter 49 after it. One thing to know about mandated benefit bills is these bills don't require any work on the part of the HR department, and they don't require any work on the part of brokers. They only apply to fully insured plans. They do not apply to self-funded plans and the insurance company will implement them. Um, but it is good to know that um, they, uh, these bills have passed because if you have a fully insured plan, it means you've got enhanced benefits um, for your employees. The first bill is a bill that if you uh, have an individual health policy, interestingly, it will now, uh, if it provides coverage for dependents, have to include a dependent parent or step-parent. SB 306 is a bill that requires HMOs and insurers to provide coverage for home test kits for sexually transmitted diseases, as well as the laboratory costs for processing those kits. SB 428 would require HMOs and insurance companies to cover as preventive care for adverse childhood experience screening. So an adverse childhood experience, or an ACE, another acronym, means an event, series of events, or sets of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or threatening and that has lasting adverse effects on the individual, individual's functioning and physical, emotional, or spiritual well-being. SB 510 is a very timely bill. It would require healthcare service plans, um, in other words, HMOs and health insurers, to cover the costs for COVID-19 diagnostics and screening tests, as well as vaccinations. And it would also require these plans to cover future diseases in the event another pandemic hits and the governor declares a state of public health emergency. There's also some retroactive provisions that would require plans to pick up the costs retroactively. 
Finally, SB 535 is a bill that require HMOs and health insurance policies, um, or bank, actually it would prohibit them from requiring prior authorization for biomarker testing for an enrollee with advanced metastatic stage three or four cancers. And that goes into effect July 1, 2022. Marilyn, could you do us a favor and just, I, I mean, I, I know this and I'm sure most people on the call do, but in, just case, in case people don't, can you explain the difference between enrolled, chaptered, and passed? Ah, yes. So uh, once a bill, if it passed, uh, it means that it's passed both the Assembly and the Senate. Um, after a bill passes, it's then sent to, um, I guess it's the Secretary of State who actually enrolls the bill. And then it gets sent to the governor. For some reason, they hadn't updated the website to change all these bills from passed to enroll. So I kept the word passed in there. Basically, enrolled and passed is substantially, for our purposes, the same thing. It means in both cases, the bill has been passed by both houses. Um, of the legislature and the bill is now sitting on the governor's desk. If the governor signs it, the bill is given a chapter number. And, uh, so chapter 49 means he, it was one of the, it was the 49th bill he signed this year. Thank you. So whenever I put chapter number behind a bill, it means it's already law. Yes. It may not go into effect until January 1, but it's been signed into law. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Sorry. We can move on now. That's okay. No, that was a good question. Um, insurance regulation, I'll go through this a little bit quicker. Um, uh, just focus on a few of the um, key bills here. AB 342 uh, would require coverage for a colorectal cancer screening test and then require a follow-up uh, colonoscopy or coverage for a follow-up colonoscopy if there's a positive result on the earlier test. Step therapy, this provide this creates new rules about step therapy. Dorothy, you're probably more familiar with this than I, but it has to do with when a, there are multiple prescription drugs that might uh, uh, be uh, prescribed for a certain condition and um, the circumstances under which a healthcare service plan can require the individual to go through step therapy. Yeah, what that, what that, what that basically means is that they're going to try a series of different drugs and work you through different drugs to get to the point where you need to be. So that's why they call it step therapy. It's on, it's on the, you'll, you'll hear about that and you probably received a lot of reports. Those are self-funded receive reports from your PBM, your pharmacy benefit manager on the types of step therapy and the types of drugs that are used in step therapy and so forth. That's what that means. 326, SB 326 is just kind of interesting. Back when the Affordable Care Act was passed in 2010, the state of California, like all other states, issued a lot of implementing uh, statutes. They passed a lot of implementing statutes. Uh, and they uh, many of these statutes said things like, this will go into effect so long as the Affordable Care Act remains in effect, or words like that. But SB 326 does is it takes that uh, language out of these bills. So the end result is that if the Supreme Court, for example, invalidated the ACA, the bills would still be on the book in California and fully enforceable. I'm going to skip through some of these. SB 221 regards timely access uh, to care, and it requires HMOs and insurance companies to provide timely access to care. And uh, specifically with regard to... Um, non-physician mental health and substance use disorder providers. This is to affect 
uh, July 1, 2022. And this is um, trying to address the concern that many people have that there are just not enough mental health providers out there. SB 280 would require large group fully insured health plans uh, to, to cover what they call basic health care services. This is already a part of um, the mandate on HMOs. They're now going to apply it to large group health insurance policies, and then they go ahead and define what constitutes basic health care services. SB 524 is a uh, prohibition on patient steering. Basically, it's preventing um, health insurers, HMOs, and insurance agents from trying to steer patients to certain pharmacies where they might have a interest, an ownership interest in those pharmacies. So let's move on to leave rights. Um, many of you already know that CIFRA changed up this year, effective January 1, 2021, the California Family Rights Act, which is California's equivalent of FMLA. They made big changes to CIFRA this year. CIFRA used to apply to employers with 50 or more employees. It, will, it now applies to employers with five or more employees and made some additional changes. The California Department of Fair Employment Housing actually issued a little handout or a poster which summarizes all of the changes in the law in which you can use to distribute um, or just for informational purposes. But I wanted to remind you of that because there were three bills pending in the legislature this year that would make further changes to CIFRA. Um, AB 1033 is kind of interesting. Um, when they passed the bill last year to um, amend CIFRA, there was a definition of parent-in-law in the bill. But then they never did anything with the phrase parent-in-law. They never extended the terms of CIFRA to allow employees to take leave to care for a parent-in-law. Well, they corrected that this year, and the legislature has passed 1033, which is now sitting on the governor's desk. And it now means that if the bill passes, employees will be able to take uh, unpaid leave under CIFRA to care for the serious health condition of a parent-in-law, and a parent-in-law is defined as the parent of a spouse or registered domestic partner. It also makes changes to the uh, mediation program, which was set up to help small employers um, work their way through um, these new CIFR obligations that they're now subject to. Interestingly, there was another bill, AB 1041, which would update both CIFRA as well as California's paid sick leave law to allow employees to not only take time off to care for a child, a parent, a parent-in-law, but also to care for what they call a designated person. So an employee could designate someone and say for the next 12 months, I want to be able to take leave to care for this friend of mine. That bill stalled. Finally, I did want to mention AB 123, which has to do with the paid family leave program. We support this through payroll tax deductions. It's a wage replacement program run by the state, the Employment Development Department. Basically, what this bill uh, will do if the governor signs it is it will increase the benefit amount. Currently, people who get paid family leave benefits get between 60 and 70 percent of their wages. It will now go up to potentially up to 90 percent. A few employment law bills I wanted to take uh, talk about AB 237 has to do with public employers, and it requires public employers to keep people on their health plans. Um, when they go out on strike. AB 397 uh, creates new notice requirements for the EDD department when they deny someone unemployment insurance benefits. 
AB 701 has to do with uh, warehouse distribution centers. This is obviously targeted at Amazon, and it requires warehouse distribution employers to notify employees of what the quota is that they'll be subject to up front. AB 1003 will make wage theft a grand theft, so it's upping the criminal impact of uh, stealing an employee's wages and therefore upping the potential penalties. AB1561 is our old uh, ABC test for independent contractors. Um, they are tweaking that once again. For this call, there's it, they're making tweaks to the categories of individuals who will be subject to the ABC test versus the Borello test. Um, I won't go through all the categories tweaked by um, AB1561, but I did want to mention that there are provisions to apply the Borello test to claims adjusters and third-party administrators who are regulated by the Department of Insurance. SB665 is a bill that Tyra, for which Dorothy and I have spent many years of devoted service, was sponsoring along with Cal Sherm, and that is a bill to allow employers to set up a voluntary veterans preference program without running afoul of anti-discrimination provisions. Oh, I did want to also mention, just very quickly, SB331 would prohibit confidentiality and non-disparagement provisions in settlement agreements involving any uh, form of FIHA harassment or discrimination. Uh, SB807 expands from two years to four years the retention period for certain employment records. AB654 clarifies several aspects of an employer's notice obligation related to COVID-19 exposure at work. Uh, and a few miscellaneous bills just to cover. Data breaches, another topic Dorothy and I both know something about uh, from our counseling and training sessions, AB 825, would include within data breaches a breach of genetic data. AB 1184 places limits on disclosure of what they define as sensitive services. Um, that is the defined terms, and um, it's, uh, if it applies, then there are additional protections for sensitive services. Um, oh, by the way, sensitive services means all healthcare services related to mental or behavioral health, sexual and reproductive health, sexually transmitted infections, substance use disorder, gender-affirming care, and intimate partner violence, among other uh, situations. Uh, SB7. 62 has to do with arbitration costs. If you're involved in an employment or consumer arbitration, the arbitrator has to provide notice of the fees and costs to all parties at the same time and in the same manner. And the last one is SB 434, and this has to do with substance abuse and mental health services and the advertising and marketing for recovery and treatment facilities, and it basically is just to make certain that they're advertising and marketing, including the photos they use and the addresses they provide, um, are accurate. So, uh, final thing that I wanted to talk about is municipalities. So, a little reminder that minimum wage goes up every year, uh, or is going up again in January for uh, the state of California for employers with 26 or more employees. It will be $15 an hour. This is particularly notable for those employers who are um, doing their ACA calculations. If you use the rate of pay safe harbor um, or the W-2 safe harbor, people's wages may be going up, and so you, therefore you have another number to use. Um, but also a reminder that many municipalities have their own minimum wage rates. 
Um, we usually see a slew of changes in January and July, so uh, keep an eye out on the municipalities in which you operate. San Francisco has a couple uh, has quite a few ordinances that regulate the workplace. I have I wanted to focus on the Healthcare Security Ordinance and the Fair Chance Ordinance because both of those have annual reporting requirements. They're due every year on April 30th, um, but they were kicked over this year due to COVID-19. However, they will go into effect again for next year. A couple of other things to keep in mind, the Healthcare Security Ordinance, this is the ordinance that requires employers to spend a certain amount of money on healthcare for their employees who are defined as covered employees, basically people working in San Francisco. Um, they amended that statute uh, to address the fact that um, a covered employee now includes employees working remotely outside of San Francisco while a public health order is in effect, recommending that employees work remotely. So let's say you're a covered employer. Let's say you're located here in Southern California, but you're large enough to satisfy the covered employer requirements. You have one person who works out of your office in the city of San Francisco you would have to cover them under um, this healthcare security ordinance. Or maybe they work at their home in San Francisco. You would have to cover them under this healthcare security ordinance. Let's say you have an office in San Francisco, but everyone's telecommuting based on an order by the city of San Francisco. You would have to treat them as covered employees. Now, they have reminded us that the uh, most recent public health order removed the telecommuting uh, recommendation. This is my bottom line for this. Keep an eye out on this to make sure that you're as up to date as possible and that you're fully compliant with this. Because as we all know, the rules on telecommuting and coming into the office change regularly. Just gives you um, the uh, expenditure rate. Uh, these adjust every year. So if you are subject to the HCSO, these are the amounts that you have to spend each month um, on uh, healthcare services for your covered employees. There is an exemption for managerial, supervisory, and confidential employees. These are all defined terms, and they must earn at least um, the amounts given. Well, that's all we have time for today. Marilyn, thank you so much for being here and sharing some great legislative updates with us. If anyone should like to reach out to you for any information on these legislative topics or anything else that we discussed today, how can they reach you? Yes, this is a very interesting time of year with a lot going on. So you can always reach me by phone at 310-989-0993 or via email at marilyn at monahanlawoffice.com. Well, thanks again, Marilyn. This has been so informative. I hope that we get to have you back again very soon, even though I have been kind of abusing our friendship as of late uh, and taking a lot of your time in the early part of season three already. So thanks again, Marilyn, and thanks everyone for listening. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Toll free at 866-658-3835. Or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.